Welcome to another exciting episode of The Tax Efficient Investor. Listen in as host Michael Johnston demystifies tax-efficient tactics to help you grow your wealth. We break down complex tax strategies and make them simple to understand and easy to implement. From HSAs to IRAs, 1031s, trusts, and more, we cover it all here on The Tax Efficient Investor. Welcome to the show. I'm Michael Johnston. Joining me today is Drew Reynolds. Drew is the Chief Investment Officer and Head of Research at Realized. Drew, thanks for coming on today. Hey, Michael. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Drew, I don't know where you are, where I am. Uh, change Seasons are starting to change, a little bit of uh, coolness in the air. I was thinking about a, a nice warm fire and some hot cocoa, and I saw uh, the other day a, an old ad for Cadbury Cocoa. Um, and they used to use the tagline, the oldest and still the best. And I thought, appropriate for DSTs and 1031s, one of the oldest tax incentives on the books. A little bit more subjective here, but I think one of the best uh, potential to defer and eliminate a lot of taxes. So uh, we'll say this episode is is unofficially and unwillingly brought to you by, by Cadbury Cocoa, the oldest and still the best. Um, so with that uh, bizarre intro out of the way, Drew, um, we're going to talk about, get into the weeds and talk about DSTs, but um, start us at a high level. Um, what's a DST? Sure. Um, so a, a DST, uh, the short version is a Delaware Statutory Trust, or DST, allows investment property owners to efficiently transition from active property management to passive wealth management in a tax-deferred manner. That's mm -hmm. the short version. Okay. Um, yeah. So that, that's a great that's a great way to start. I love just hitting off the bat a real a real quick summary. We're going to get into the weeds here in, in just a minute. So I know I know you got plenty more to say about it. Before we do that, you know, we're going to talk about the the what and the how of the of the DST. I like to to before I do that, talk about the why. Whenever there's a, a tax incentive created, it's because we uh, as a as a society acting through our our representatives, we're trying to incentivize some sort of behavior. So. What are we trying to incentivize with with DSTs and 1031s? Sure. So the the I think there's a little bit of a distinction here. The the DST itself yep. is not a true incentive. The DSTs benefit from the 1031 exchange provisions that you just mentioned, and yep. also as you just mentioned, you'll listen the best. The the 1031's been around for um, over a hundred years now. So the why on the 1031 exchanges is that they align with broader economic policy goal of um, ensuring investment, job creation, and maintaining a uh, maintaining the physically built environment. Mm -hmm. So uh, think of the number of people and services involved every time a property is bought or sold. You got yeah. real estate brokers, you got construction, trades, legal, finance, title, transfer tax, on and on. The point being, there's significant economic stimulation and indirect job creation every time a property changes hands. And so giving that tax incentive to make it easier or you know, more likely that those transact do have an indirect um, benefit to the economy. Um, and then I think there's also something out there, there's studies that show that, or suggest that when properties are acquired, that the new owner is more likely to put significant capital improvement dollars to assets compared with the, the seller, You know, there's just that, Hey, I got this. It's new. Let's fix it up. Let's bring it to where it is. And I think that that, you know, indirectly also keeps that the built environment, you know, up to speed. Things looking good. Things looking nice, which has its own uh, societal uh, benefits. Um, 
And then specific to the DSTs, again, not a direct incentive, but it is important to note that there was a formal IRS revenue ruling back in 2004 that provided specific guidance uh, around the requirements of what, what it, all the attributes that needed to be in place for that DST to qualify as like-kind or 31 exchange eligible. Got it. Great point there about, I mean, that makes a ton of sense intuitively. Um, I'm glad to hear there's a study to back it up, but it makes sense to, to my mind that when you're the, the new owner of a property, you're much more likely to, to, to put money into it. it. It's a new thing and you, you've owned something forever and it's cash flowing nicely and you're happy to just kind of let it run down a little bit. So it I, makes, makes a ton of sense here. So let's, let's circle back here and let's kind of define and, and organize a few related, related terms here. You've kind of touched on this already. 1031 exchange, DST, DIC, um, explain what these concepts are, how, how they're related and how they're different. Yeah, a bunch, bunch of alphabet soup here, right? Um, yeah, right. So let me <laughs> unpack some of the acronyms into, um, into plain English. So 1031 exchange, uh, we just talked about. 1031 exchange refers to section 1031 of the Internal Revenue Code, which allows investors to defer capital gains and depreciation recapture when they sell an investment property, um, provided that the proceeds are reinvested into a property of like kind, that's the, the term that they use. And all that means, it simply just means that owning a property for business or investment and reinvesting into another property held for business or investment. And maybe just to unpack that, just a, just a tad, that really means any property that's not your primary residence. Um, so it could be if you're a dentist, it could be the, if you maybe own your dental building, um, for most investors, it could just mean a rental house. And then I think what trips people up sometimes is this idea of like kind. It's, sure. it's actually much broader and simpler than you think. I can sell a rental property, uh, a house, a rental house, and I could buy uh, a piece of land if I'm holding it for investment, or I could sell an industrial building and buy a hotel. It does not truly need to be residential for residential. It just means business or investment for business or investment. That's it. Um, the Delaware Statutory Trust and tenant or DST that we talked about before and tenant in common or TIC, which you, you mentioned, um, same, same but different. Um, they're both legal structures that permit multiple investors to co-own real estate in a 1031 compliant manner. Both legal structures have been around for an awfully long time, and both got uh, formal IRS revenue rulings in the early 2000s, which is what, so half a step back again, these entities have been around for you know, probably 100 years, right? But in terms of allowing more investors to be able to access them and invest them, it really both came off the heels of, of revenue rulings that said, if you do these things, it will qualify. That happened to the, the tenant and common industry in 2002, and it happened to the DST industry in 2004. Um, the tenant and common of the ticks were the more popular uh, of the vehicle in the early 2000s, and I think it's really just because they got the, the IRS ruling earlier. Um, today, the DST is far more popular or far more used for the syndicated 1031 investors compared to the ticks. Um, that's really a couple big differences. Um, although I mentioned they both allow multiple investors in a 1031 compliant. Um, the big differences are that the DST is a completely passive investment. Uh, from an investor standpoint, it's, it's completely hands-off, putting the hands or the 
the property in the hands of professional management. Uh, tenant in common, on the other hand, there may be some or require some active decision making from the investors, at least on major decisions like when to sell the property, when to major leases, things like that. Um, I don't know that we want to go into all the structural nuances today, but the, 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 the sort of what does that mean to me as an investor is that the DSTs tend to work pretty well for stabilized income orientated properties. The, you'll hear the term mailbox money thrown out yeah. there. Works really well for that. Um, but they don't have a lot of flexibility for deals with moving parts or a lot going on. Um, the DSTs can accept a far greater number of investors, which what that does is it reduces the minimum investment amount and it allows for more diversification. So for somebody looking just to be passive, mailbox type money, um, a lot of diversification risk management, the DSTs are the more favored structure. Uh, can Conversely, a tenant in common or tenant or a tick structure is more flexible. Uh, you can do a lot of things inside that structure that you can't do in a DST, but it allows much fewer number of investors, which drives down the size of the offering, increases the minimum amounts that somebody would have to go into it. Um, and they can be more challenging to finance. Um, some lenders don't like the idea that you have multiple um, previously unrelated investors having having voting rights on things. Yeah. Um, so they both have use cases, but I'd say they're, they're not 100% interchangeable. They're 1031 real estate vehicles, but use cases are slightly different. Got it. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, I actually don't know the answer to this, so I'm going to learn something here. The, the D in DST stands for, for Delaware. What is it about Delaware that, that, um, that lends itself to this structure? Yeah, it's a pretty unexciting answer, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, despite the name from the investor standpoint, and DST has uh, very little to do with the state of Delaware, other than being the state that it's incorporated. And okay. so if you look at if you look at like publicly listed companies, not just real estate, but you know, companies in general, there's a reason that a lot of corporations are headquartered in Delaware. That's and right. it really has to do with the the ease and speed of registering companies. And that tends to be a legal system that's recognized by other states and that's kind of on the forefront of business law. Um, that's it. But for it to be real clear from an, from an investor standpoint, they can live anywhere in the country. The DST properties can be anywhere in the country. They could have sold a property anywhere in the country. None of that matters. It's strictly an incorporation thing. Got it. So don't worry if you're outside of Delaware, which probably 99% of the country is or, or close to it. Um, this is still available to you. Um, so let's, Let's talk through, Drew, let's go through the kind of this, the process of this from start to finish. So let's say, um, let's say I own an investment property. We'll just call it a, an apartment complex. I've owned it for a long time. I'm looking to sell it. Uh, let's say, you know, I've got a million dollar basis and I'm going to sell it for 10 million bucks. So I'm looking at a, a huge capital gain here. So how could I take advantage of, of the DST um, or how could I roll these, pro I, mean, I guess I'm not even sure on the right terminology, but how could I essentially roll these proceeds into a DST? Walk us through that from kind of start to finish. Sure. So before we get too far along, I do have to throw out my uh, securities disclaimer, which is I'm not giving tax or legal advice and that these are limited to accredited investors and talk to your financial advisor. But <laughs> you know, you brought up a, a couple of points and along the line of talking to your financial advisor, I, I do think it starts there. You mentioned things like tax basis and, and tax hit. And even though this is my uh, my job or this is what our company does, 
we do like to first tell people to slow down a little bit and really figure out what that tax liability is. Yeah. Sometimes it's not as bad as you might think. That's that's your pain point. And um, for some investors, maybe they should pay taxes. I think they also have to lay, you know, we always say deferring taxes is not an investment strategy. It's a point in time. It certainly is impactful, but you got to think beyond that. And, you know, how does this fit in with my overall life goals? Where do I want to be? Should I think about paying taxes and going into all their stuff? Or should I think about doing that over time? So we do like to say, you know, calm down, um, do your education and, and your research and make sure that you are sort of thinking about this. You know, the, the other thing I'll point out there is you gave the example of $10 million and it sort of doesn't matter. But what we, we do see time and time again is that real estate by nature is a chunky asset that it makes up in a lot of times a disproportionate amount of someone's net worth or at least a sure. meaningful portion of their net worth. So that 1031 puts you at a point where most investors, this doesn't happen to them that many times in their, in their life or their career, where they have this opportunity to reposition a big chunk of their wealth. Yeah. And so again, just sort of thinking about it more, I think oftentimes on kind of like a wealth management approach as opposed to a, a deal uh, approach uh, makes a lot of sense. So what's my tax hit if I were to go the other way? What do I want this bucket of money to do for me um, over the, the, the long term? Because these are longer term investments. So that's more of a philosophical thing from there, from a more sort of practical logistics. What do I actually do here? <laughs> the provided you've maybe found a financial advisor that you'd like to work with that's on the same page as you. Then you also need to find uh, something that's called a qualified intermediary or a QI for short. This is very, very important. In a 1031 exchange, you cannot take the proceeds from your sale directly. It has to be held by, it's somewhat like an escrow, but it has to be, it's a very special kind of escrow, not just anybody can do it. And that's, if you take possession of the funds from the sale, you could potentially void the ability to do a 1031 exchange altogether. Um, these groups are going to be holding, you know, the example you just gave $10 million. So you want to make sure that it's somebody who's trustworthy and reputable and bonded, insured and all, all that sort of stuff, but super um, key. From there, I think that you, um, again, if you're going back to what you want this bucket of money to do with you, there's some sort of scenario planning. Um, we mentioned that the DSTs, because of the ability to take a lot of investors, they do lend themselves well to diversification or able to make, you know, it's not like I'm going all in to one DST. And so taking a half a step back, a DST can own one property or a DST can own multiple properties, but they are static and it is finite. So it's a little bit different than say a REIT or, or a fund. So you have the opportunity as an investor or an advisor to basically customize this portfolio of real estate exposure. And different assets are going to serve different purposes to those investors, whether it's, you know, are you looking for income? Are you looking for growth? Do you want something with a shorter holding period? And if you put those things all together, you can actually get, you know, a portfolio that looks to approximate what you're trying to do with, with that bucket of money. So I, that's something that we really encourage investors to do and maybe compare multiple options. Hey, what if I were to take out a little bit more risk? What if I wanted a little bit higher certainty in, in income? What does that look like? Very similar to what you do in a traditional wealth management process. Sure. Yeah. So let's fast forward now. Say you got you got through that and you've 
at least have directionally where you'd want to go. Um, we do advocate that investors do their own due diligence. The um, all the underlying documents; these are what I'd call prepackaged offerings, meaning the properties are already owned, debts already in place. Literally any like due diligence level thing you'd want to know about the property is available to you. Um, again, a good advisor can help shortcut this for you, or certainly save you hours and hours of reading. But you do want to, you know, fully understand what you're getting into. Um, obviously. Now, let's just say you've gone through that, the planning process fits your needs or your desires, what you want to do, you're comfortable with the due diligence. Uh, you now go through a set of paperwork. It's uh, for those who have never gone through, these are technically private placements. Um, it can be a little bit daunting, but I'd say it's less involved than say a mortgage application. Um, but it is you know, a bunch of questions about your you know, financial wherewithal, your sophistication, purchase and sale contracts. They're pretty uniform, but it can be a lot. Um, from there, the qualified intermediary, again, the group that you are uh, holding the investment proceeds with, at the investor's discretion, will release those money, uh, monies. So the, the dollars have to come from the qualified intermediary directly to the, the various sponsors of the DST, and that completes the exchange um, when that happens. Um, so there is a fair amount of logistics and kind of paperwork and, and back and forth, but it's ultimately all for the uh, investor's protection. Um, this can all be done remotely. By the way, you're not, it's, we always kind of joke, it's, it's pretty anticlimactic. There's no closing table that you go to or anything like that. It's a bunch of paperwork flying around the internet. Um, Post-closing is the investor really, whether it's a DST, a tenant in common, direct property, 1031, it's all the same. You're going to report that on uh, it's IRS form 8824 for anybody who cares, but your accountant uh, can help you do that, but you do need to report it. Um, DSTs then typically make monthly income distributions. I used the term mailbox money um, earlier. So if things are going well, which hopefully they are, not always, but hopefully they are, most investors just have that direct deposited um, into their bank account. At the end of the year, the various offering sponsors will provide the necessary tax filing paperwork. Um, it looks a lot like a K-1. It's technically not a K-1, but it, it looks and feels just like that. It's something you can easily hand over to your accountant, or we have a lot of investors that do it themselves. It's, it's not overly complicated, I think, which is um, uh, good news. And then at some point in the future, the DSTs will sell, and the sponsor is going to decide to sell the property based on the business plan of those assets. When that property sells, the investor has a choice. They're back in the exact same situation that they're in at the front of this process, which is their 1031 exchange eligible, meaning they have the choice. They can pay taxes. They could, they could actually go back into direct property if they wanted on a 1031 eligible basis. They could buy a DST or any combination. So that's kind of a lot, but that's, that's basically it. No, that, that's, a, that's a great, that's exactly what I wanted, Drew, from, from start to finish. So. I want to kind of circle back to a, a couple of things here and, and make sure sure folks are clear. Uh, so the, the reason, one of the reasons you're doing this, one of the benefits is if, if you go through all these steps that Drew just walked through, you have successfully deferred that capital gain that you realized and you, you won't owe taxes. Now you've deferred it, you haven't eliminated it. So um, you've kind of kicked the can down the road. Drew mentioned when the underlying property or properties sell, uh, you're, you're kind of back in the same position where you've got that decision. And I appreciate you zooming out, Drew, and talking kind of philosophically there. 
that decision to make, do I pay taxes now? What's the, the best thing for my long-term plan? Um, but that's the that's kind of the, the, the big gain here, the, the nice tax strategy. Um, the ability to defer that that tax burden is can be pretty significant. Um, another couple of things that that you can accomplish here that that Drew kind of alluded to, but I want to make sure folks understand completely. Um, he mentioned at the top, this is a, a good way for people to transition from active to passive management, um, the, the DST in particular. So, you know, if, if you're sick of managing a, a property, the the three T's of tenants and and toilets and trash, you're sick of doing that. Um, when you go through these steps, you, you kind of become a, a passive owner. You get that mailbox money um, and, and you don't have to, at least in the, the DST and most DST arrangements, um, you're not actively managing it and you kind of transition to a, a passive role. Um, and then the diversification piece of it. So instead of owning you know, one, one multifamily building in, in one city on one block, um, you know, there's, there's kind of a, a basic principle of investing. There's a lot of concentrated risk there. Uh, potential to to spread this out across some different asset classes, different parts of the country, um, and own I guess own a, a smaller piece of a of a bigger pie essentially. Um, Drew, did, did I get about get that right? Anything I I screwed up there? No, you you nailed it. You've been uh you've been doing your homework. Yeah, Played attention. Sort of piggyback <laughs> off that. Yeah, yeah. just yeah. piggyback off that. Yeah, I think something that's maybe a little bit more relatable. Uh, most people are familiar with a like a four hundred one k, right? Yeah. And um, the ten thirty one is. I got to be a little careful with with mixing analogies, but uh, it's a little bit like a four hundred one k in the sense that by deferring taxes, you, you're keeping more dollars working for yeah. you, and the compound yeah. effect of keeping more dollars is is huge. So that's kind of the ten thirty one one on one. Then I, I've been kind of struggling with trying to come up with an analogy for for the other part, but it's kind of like you, you know you mentioned that a lot of the the property that people own tends to be concentrated, it tends to be close to home, and so I kind of look at that like what if you ran a small business and that was great for building your wealth, that's where you did everything, and then at some point you you sold your business and you've got uh, a bucket of money that's available to you. Now would you go out and would you put all your money back into another business? If you're trying to retire a single business, probably not. Would you put all your money into Microsoft? Probably not. And so you can sort of take the same approach with real estate. And again, looking at what those underlying investments, the role they play in that portfolio. But, you know, to your point, if I have, and it doesn't even need to be, you know, real estate's always a lot of money just because it's an expensive asset class. But relative to the size and scale that you're investing in. I think that that's important to note that you're able to access and construct something that's almost like a mini REIT. Like, for example, even if I had 500,000, I could defer my taxes. I could put 100,000 into a DST that owns a 300-unit apartment building in Tampa. I could put 200,000 into a Amazon distribution center in Denver, and I could put 200,000 into a you know, 10 property self-storage portfolio across the Southwest. And so now I'm in multiple states, multiple property types, multiple operators, very similar to what you do with kind of a stocks and bonds portfolio, not to the same extent, but similar concept. Sure. Yeah. Same principle, diversification, values of diversification. Um, one of the first things you learn in, uh, I, at least I learned in my uh, finance degree. Um, I want to go into a couple, a couple little wrinkles here. Um, we're talking about, about debt. So if you, if you go into a DST, you own that smaller piece of a, of a bigger pie. 
when you go from being kind of an active manager to a passive investor, how does how does debt play into that? Are are you the recourse debt? Are you on the hook for that? Are you um, you know being underwritten by banks if the the underlying uh, portfolios or properties are are taking on debt, whether it be construction or um, or a different type of debt? Yeah. So let, if I back up just a half a step, I think that with any 1031 exchange, this is not unique to the DST. There, you have to do two things in order to yep. a fully deferred taxes. You have to reinvest all your equity proceeds, and you have to buy equal or greater property value. Now, what that generally means is if you had debt on the property you sold, from a practical standpoint, you need to replace that. So let's mm -hmm. give an example. Uh, I sold a million dollar property and I had a $500,000 mortgage. So I have 500,000 of equity. So I have to spend the 500,000 of equity, but I also have to buy a million dollars worth of property. Again, that's true of any 1031 exchange, not the, the DSTs. Now, the DSTs are unique in the sense that I used the term earlier, prepackaged. And so what that means is that DSTs may, some are all cash that don't have any debt, and others have some degree of first mortgage financing already attached to the property. Um, it is secured against the property. It's non-recourse to the investor. The investor does not get underwritten. They do not fill out any forms, anything like that. It's strictly, um, and to go a step further, you're actually in a in an entity that's kind of above and beyond like an LLC in terms of liability protection and all that. But you are, for the purposes of 1031 exchanges, you're allocated your amount of debt. So let me just take my $500,000 example. And let's say that I'm looking at uh, this Amazon distribution center and it's a hundred million dollar property. But of that hundred million dollars, it's 50 million of equity and 50 million of debt. Well, if I put my 500,000 into that, 50 million of equity, I own 1% of that offering. I'm also allocated 1% of the debt, which is, <laughs> so, you know, made this easy on myself, that would, that would equal the debt. Different investments have different amounts. And as long as the entire exchange, what I call balances, so let's say that that didn't have 50%, let's say it had 40%, but I put half my money in that. And then I found another deal that had another offering that had 60%. And between the two of them, the numbers worked out, that would satisfy uh, my exchange requirements. Got it. Great. Um, and then the, the second question I have, um, so I, I think most examples or we've kind of been assuming so far, you're the sole owner of a property and, and you sell it and you realize again, what about folks who are in, let's say they're in a successful syndication. So they, you know, they, they own um, that small piece of a bigger pie with another group of investors that property sold. And, and then they realize, you know, their proportional part of the capital gain. Are they eligible? Um, are, are there ways for them to do a, a 1031 or a DST, or do you have to be a, a sole owner? Um, it's it's a little more complicated. So uh, there's a lot of facts and circumstances. So I'm going to answer this in a very general sense. So the short version is talk to your tax advisor. Um, <laughs> most syndications are structured as either an LLC or a limited partnership or some sort of partnership. Um, the IRS has something that's called the same taxpayer provision meaning let's just say you're in a syndicate that's in an LLC. The IRS is gonna say the LLC is the owner of that property, not you individually. You are an investor in that LLC, you don't own the property. What that means is that the LLC could do a 1031 exchange. Mm -hmm. So let's say your syndicate sells a property, the entire syndicate 
as that entity to do a 1031 exchange, but um, unlikely that the individual investors would have individual 1031 exchange optionality. The DST, outside of sole ownership, you've got the DST and the tenant in common are really the only two legal entities that allow multiple investors both coming in and going out to have, have exchange eligibility. REITs don't qualify, LLCs don't qualify. There's some fancier stuff that you can do with advanced planning that may make it eligible. Um, but I think that would be a, <laughs> that'd be a topic for another day, but it, it can be done, but it requires a lot of advanced planning. The short version is, is no. Okay. Great. Um, good advice there that this is complicated. You know, Drew, I, I'm, I generally um, am on the side of encouraging people, investors to, to take ownership of their portfolio and, and play a, a big role. This is something where it's you need to get professional advice. You need, you need to get help here. Um, this is complicated. There's a lot of moving pieces. Drew's mentioned a few places of, of things that you can screw up, not getting a qualified intermediary. Um, I guess, let me ask you, Drew, what, what else do you see people screw up um, when they're doing a 1031 or, or a DST or, or what would they screw up if, if you weren't there to help them out, I guess? Yeah. So a funny anecdote, uh, years ago when Realize first got started, we had, we, we formed, um, you know, an online marketplace. Like you've seen a lot of these, you mentioned syndicates and, and whatnot. And we had the, the invest now button. Yeah. <laughs> it was never, never once pushed. And I think that the reason is that very different than like a syndicate where you've got it's idle cash, you're looking to invest and grow. And if I miss a deadline or something, nothing really happens. Maybe I miss out on a deal. The 1031, very different. Typically higher dollar amounts because it's property that's been owned, that's highly appreciated. And if I do it wrong, I got massive tax problems and these investments are illiquid. So if I do it wrong and I owe tax, where am I gonna get the money to, to pay that tax? Um, and then I also mentioned that sort of life transitional point that tends to go along with at least the desire to go into the, the, the DST. So I think you're right. The combination of all those things does not, it, we would definitely advocate that you, <laughs> you work with a professional uh, on doing that. So I, I think that that's probably the first just sort of key benefit that we see people get too focused yeah. on just deal or not coming to that conclusion soon enough and then that they're scrambling to be able to make um, investments. I think the other one, and we see this in really any sort of tax advantaged real estate or tax advantage any investment, and that's that tax benefits don't make a bad investment into a good investment, but they, you know, tax benefits can make a good investment into a very good investment. Sure. And so, thinking through the, yeah, I said earlier that you know, deferring tax is not an investment strategy. It's like part of it's table stakes as to why we're. we're we're talking, but they, they get so caught up on the, yeah, but I don't have to pay taxes. And like, yeah, this is not, you know, the, the best, <laughs> best deal for you. Uh, again, I say that the, the 1031 or the DST is the entity that allows the 1031, but it's the underlying investments that are going to allow you to, to achieve um, your goals. And so we would think through all that again. What if you had a bucket of money with no constraints? What would you do? Okay, great. Now you have some constraints that stay in real estate, but let's try to, to, to do all that. Um, the other one, and it's along the same lines, is the, uh, so there's the the sort of the, the DST side of things or the, the 1031 side of things and all the, the tax traps that go under there. But the other is the, the sort of being honest with yourself around where your capabilities um, start and where you may need some help. And that's sure. in 
a lot of investors in the DST came out of, you mentioned earlier, local concentrated positions. And so if I owned a duplex in San Diego, that might've been awesome. I don't know how owning a duplex in San Diego qualifies me to under, to underwrite or understand a self-storage portfolio in New York. Like having real estate sort of where it starts and stops. And so, and I take this out of the, you know, again, going back to that sort of 401k analogy, I use that, like when I go talk to my wealth advisor, right? Like we're not talking about the PE ratios of each underlying investment that's on there. I'm going to them because they have a team of research, you know, behind there that's coming up with these portfolios and they're helping me guide to what I want to do with my money. And there's, you know, some degree of trust that the professionals behind them have thought this through and underwritten. And I think that for whatever reason, real estate being this tangible asset, people, I hate to say it this way, but they kind of think they know more than they actually do about where, where that transition point is going. Yep, a great point. Um, well, Drew, let me give you a, um, an opportunity here. I want you to explain what Realize does and where you kind of fit into this ecosystem and this, this process and how you can help folks out who are trying to answer some of these tough questions. Uh, sure. <laughs> so the, the way I describe it is uh, Realize is an investment property wealth management firm and a wealth tech platform. So we work both with financial advisors and we work uh, directly with consumers that are under-advised or, or unadvised. So for financial advisors, um, we provide systematic and scalable management of their clients' investment property wealth. You, you probably noticed a lot of what I was talking about, sort of wealth management theory We've actually built um, a heavy tech stack and the ability to quantify risk and return in a very similar manner as you would with stocks and bonds. Again, we're just taking it. The DST is just the vehicle that allows that to happen, but the overall process is very similar. Um, and for the unadvised or underadvised families, um, very similar. We just help them manage their investment property wealth with the same tools and sophistication as traditional assets like stocks and bonds. We, so we can either do it directly or we can do it through um, financial advisors and we're, you know, indifferent as to how that happens as long as the, um, the investor is the one who's coming out on top. Sure. Okay. And last question for you, Drew, where can folks go if they want to learn a little bit more or get in touch with you? Yeah, the easiest way would be, um, realized 1031.com, um, for the direct, uh, investors is a large educational resource portal. I'd suggest that you start there. Um, and for financial advisors, it's in a, a financial advisor section that, that spells how we work together. And that's, that's probably the best place to start. Great. Well, as anyone who's been listening can tell, Drew and his team are a tremendous resource on this. Um, great educational materials. They know their stuff. They've, they've uh, been doing this for a while. So whether you're an advisor who's, who's got a question um, or an, an individual investor who's in the fortunate position of, of having a gain, hopefully coming down the pipeline, um, get in touch with them. Drew, I want to thank you for joining me. You are a, a tremendous resource here. I learned a few things today and uh, this was fun. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you, Michael. Uh, it's fun being here. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.